Today begins a new series over the next four weeks as we'll be walking through the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Uh, I would invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is tucked right in the middle of the 12, uh, maybe not right in the middle, but near the middle of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament, which is toward the end of the Old Testament. They're not called minor prophets because they're somehow less important. They're just minor because they're shorter. Uh, Most of the uh, minor prophets are four, five, six chapters maybe compared to the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, which are many chapters in length. Jonah uh, is interesting among the minor prophets because Jonah does not read like most of the other prophets do. Most of the other minor prophets, and even the major prophets for the most part, uh, read like uh, written or recorded oracles from God through his prophet to his people or to the people that they're intended. Jonah is quite different. Jonah reads more like a historic narrative. The, the story of Jonah almost would fit better alongside the narratives of the lives of Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. It, it feels a little bit more like that. But nevertheless, here it is in the Minor Prophets. When somebody tells a fish story... You know that you're, you're in for a tale. No pun intended. Uh, I really didn't mean that. I really didn't mean that. If somebody's telling a fish story, they usually embellish the size of the fish they caught, the difficulty with which it was reeled in. Uh, usually everything in the story gets blown, well, not blown out of proportion, but expanded just enough to strain the imagination and yet also, you know, make you feel some pride or gladness for this person who caught a fish. If ever there was a fish story in the Bible, people would be inclined to think that it was a story of Jonah. Jonah is a story with uh, big stuff. There is a large fish. There's a great storm. There's a great city called Nineveh that Jonah is called to go through. There is a miraculous plant that grows up in a night, and then a worm that eats and destroys the plant in a night. Jonah is full of a, a, a lot of these if we just put it this way, miraculous types of events. But Jonah is not a fish story. Jonah is not one of these overly embellished tales or parables that borrow maybe names from prophets or places or things like that and, and, and apply them to a fictional story so as to make a point. Now, I believe Jonah is the historical story of a merciful God and a rebel prophet. Jonah is meant to be not just a story that we read and enjoy and are entertained by and which inspires VeggieTale movies and the like, but Jonah is meant to be a story that ultimately reads us. It's a story that is meant to, a story of a life of a prophet, historical events in the life of a prophet that God has intended to speak to the hearts of His people, that, that it might reveal our heart's deepest motives, our heart's truest posture toward God and toward others. And this story that reads us through the life of Jonah starts with a God who exercises His power in unexpected ways. This morning, uh, our passage for focus is Jonah chapter 1, uh, all of the chapter, verses 1 through 17. If you're using one of the Bibles under a seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 783. In Jonah chapter 1, we find God sovereignly, in His power, in His independent power and will, calling Jonah to go preach a message of repentance to Nineveh, a great city far from his home. And in the course of events in Jonah chapter 1, God is going to ensure that Jonah will obey. God calls Jonah, and God is going to make Jonah obedient. The main idea of Jonah chapter 1 is is surprising, and it catches us off guard, but it is this. The ways that God works His sovereign will are often surprising, but always successful. The ways that God works His perfect will are often surprising to us as human beings who are seeking to follow Him, but His ways and His will are always successful. As we encounter this truth in Jonah this morning, my hope is that we would not only see and recognize again God's sovereign will, but that we would look for places in our lives where we can be ready to obey it. Jonah in many ways serves as a negative example, an example of what not to do. Let us not be like Jonah. Let us be the kind of person that God is calling us to be through Jonah's life. 
Would you stand as we honor God by reading His Word, beginning in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 to start. There we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's continue in reading. Jonah goes to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us a th- will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they, the mariners, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The ways God works His sovereign will are often surprising, but always successful. The story of Jonah is less about Jonah. In fact, Jonah is not even really the main character, if we could put it that way. Jonah is kind of a bit player in a bigger story. The bigger story that's being told is God's story. It's God's story of getting a message of, uh, well, it's God's story of revealing his character to his people through Jonah. And over against or in contrast to the wicked people that live in Nineveh to whom Jonah is supposed to go and to preach to. The main character in Jonah is not Jonah. It's God. Let me demonstrate that to us in a few different ways uh, throughout the course of chapter 1. First of all, well, let me just say that we see all of the the significant action in Jonah chapter 1 is not done by Jonah, it's done by God. We see God, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, calling His prophet in surprising ways. Maybe even, can I say, confounding ways, ways that, that boggle a reasonable mind. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom of uh, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, after the death of King Solomon. Uh, He was a prophet to the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. This was about 793 to 753 BC or so. God's call comes to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a very formulaic way that God speaks to his prophets. You can look throughout a, a number of the minor prophets and you'll see that phrase. The word of the Lord came to, fill in the prophet's name, and this is what God said. What is God? How does God call Jonah? He says, first of all, arise, get up, and go to Nineveh because their sin has come up against me or come up to me. Their sin has stunk to high heaven, so go preach against them. What do we know about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was not an Israelite city. Nineveh was an Assyrian city. It was a significant city in Assyria. 
Uh, Jonah chapter 4 verse 11 tells us that at that time there were more than 120,000 people that lived there in addition to many animals and livestock as well. But what we know about Assyrians from history is that they were not a particularly nice people. In fact, they were a rather violent people. One scholar records this, that the Assyrians were well known in the ancient world for brutality and cruelty. Ashurbanipal, who was one of the kings, uh, uh, who was the grandson of Sennacherib, both kings of Assyria uh, in the uh, uh, late 700s, early 600s BC, Ashurbanipal was accustomed to tearing off the lips and hands of his victims. Tiglath-Pileser III, who reigned between 745 and 727 BC, he flayed victims alive and made great piles of their skulls. The Assyrians, the Ninevites, are heads on sticks out, heads of your enemies on sticks outside of your city kind of people. And God says to Jonah, hey, Joe, got a task for you. Get up, and go to that city with all those enemy heads on sticks outside of it and preach to them about how bad they are. God's call to Jonah is simple and clear. Get up, arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's response is the exact opposite. God says to Jonah, get up, arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah, we read in verse 3, rose to go to Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was to the east of Israel and the kingdom of Israel. Tarshish, we're not exactly sure where it is, but quite possibly is in modern day Spain, far, far to the west. In Jonah's day, it would have been the far west ends of the earth, so to speak. So God says to Jonah, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up and goes as far as he can go in the world that he knew. Away, as the text says three different times, away from the presence of the Lord. Did you catch that each time it was mentioned? Jonah got up, verse 3, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Later, at the end of verse 3, he paid the fare, went down into it to go to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He tells the sailors who he is and who he fears, and the sailors know that he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah wants to go not just as far away as he can from God's call, he wants to get as far away from God as he possibly can. God says, get up, and Jonah gets up and goes down. He goes down to Joppa, down into a ship, down into the hull of the ship, down into sleep. Later in the story, he'll go down into the sea and further down into the belly of the fish. Catch the irony of Jonah's life. In his decisions here, the prophet of God, who had already, as 2 Kings uh, chapter 14 tells us, had already been likely ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel. This prophet of God, who was well acquainted with God's word and with God's work among his people, he knew all of the miraculous things and all of the great uh, works of deliverance that God had done for his people, particularly uh, in the Exodus and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. This Jonah, who knows this God, and who knows God's character of holiness and mercy to repenting sinners, which was revealed in Exodus 34 when God said to Moses, I'm the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. A, a formula, a, a creed, if you will, of what is known about God that the people of Israel would repeat throughout ages, which Jonah himself repeats and acknowledges that he knows in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. This prophet of God who knows this God and all that he does refuses to follow God's call. It is interesting as we look at Jonah's life and this very, very difficult, maybe even impossible call on his life to go to people who hated him and who were despicable in the eyes of so many, that Jonah's call is not altogether different. and God's will for Jonah is not altogether different from God's will for Christ. God sends His Son, Jesus the Christ, to a despicable people, to a people who had defied Him. John 3.16 tells us the wonderful, beautiful truth that God, that God loves us in this way, that He sent His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
Romans 5, 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass, speaking of Adam's first sin in the garden, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, speaking about Christ's death for sinners, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Friends, Jesus did not come to save people who have got it all together. He is not God's demonstration of love to people who loved him first. He is God's demonstration of love for people who hated him. For sinful, wicked people who denied God's existence, who defied his glory, who rejected his worship. And that's all of us. When God calls his son, when he tells his son to go and give his life for sinners, that call is not altogether different, maybe even harder then God's called to Jonah to go and preach to that wicked city. But see the difference between Jonah and Jesus. Where Jonah hears the word of God, the command of God, get up and go, he gets up and goes the opposite direction. When the Son of God knows God's will, he goes and fulfills it all in perfect obedience. Christ fulfills God's will absolutely opposite of the manner in which Jonah did. Not unwillingly, but willingly. We sang about the moment there as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the the night before he would give his life for sinners. And he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done. God's call on Jonah is a hard one. His call to Jesus, the Son, was a difficult one. And dear friend, God's call and His will for the church is not altogether different from that of Jonah or Jesus. Now, of course, we're not called to go and save the lost and justify them to God. We as sinners, saved by grace, can't do that for anyone else. But Jesus, the one who did die for sins, who is raised to make those who trust in Him right with God, did give this command to the church in Matthew 28, 18, and 20. Before, after he was resurrected from the dead and before he was ascended to heaven, he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. The word for nations is the Greek word ethne. It's the word from which we get our English word ethnicity from all people groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Why does Christ commission his followers to make disciples of all nations? Even nations that might hate them. Even people who might be so violently opposed to the gospel as to put believers to death for preaching the gospel. Because God has willed to do it. Because God has willed to redeem people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people for His glory, as Revelation 7, 9 pictures for us. God calls His prophet in a surprising way to do a surprising thing. But Jonah's call is not altogether unique. It's it's similar in many ways to Christ's call to do an impossible thing for a despicable people, which Jesus fulfills obediently. And it's similar to the call that he gives to us to go to all nations, not just the ones that like us, not just the ones that are like us, but to all of them. Understand this this morning, friend, whether you're a Christian or not, God will call you to defy yourself and to do confounding things for his sake. God will work. He will call in your life like he did in Jonah. Listen, I know Jonah's an entertaining story. It's a fun one to read with your kids. It'll, it'll invoke their imagination and, and inspire all sorts of, of uh, interesting concepts and questions and that sort of thing. But ultimately, Jonah is revealing, the story of Jonah is revealing what God does for all of his people. He calls us to defy ourselves and to do strange, even confusing things for his sake. The first call of God that confounds, that boggles the mind, is to every sinner who does not yet know Christ. It is to trust Him for salvation. This is a confounding call of God. Because on our own, we we tend to think relatively highly of ourselves. We tend to think that we are relatively or maybe even especially good people. I'm not a murderer. I'm, I'm not a thief. I'm not a liar. Now, sure, I may not be the nicest person all the time, and I may do some things that, you know, maybe we're a little bit irresponsible or morally objectionable, but uh, but I'm not as bad as like those Ninevite folk. Why do I need salvation? 
I can surely God knows that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But the call of the gospel, friends, is a call that reminds us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That not a one of us, no matter how many good things you do, not how many generous things you do, not how much, no matter how much community service you do or how kind you are to others, that you are still a sinner who is short of the glory of God and by your own efforts can never make up that difference. It is a confounding call that God gives to all the world to say, the only way to right relationship with me is through faith in my son Jesus who died to pay for your sins. That is a confounding call. That is a confusing call. That's a surprising call. Maybe a call that you find ridiculous if you're not yet a believer, but friend, that's the call of God to you. Or perhaps you are a Christian. You've already responded in faith to that confounding call. God, in His way and in His wisdom, through His Holy Spirit, has given you insight to see, I, I don't know how it makes sense, but I believe that it is true, that God has paid for my sins in Jesus and that I am right with Him. Well, guess what? There's a confounding, a surprising call to you too. And that call is to go to inconvenient people and to go to inconvenient places, to shed light on sin and to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. We live in a culture, we live in a society that wants to let everybody kind of do their own thing, mind your own business, stay out of my life, just I won't hurt you, you won't hurt me, just let me go on my own way. Friends, that is not the call. Christian, that is not the call that God has given to each of us. He's given to all of us a call to make disciples of all nations, which means pointing out the reality of sin, pointing out the wonderful, blessed truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for forgiveness of sins, and to call people to turn from doing life their own way, on their own terms, where they want, when they want, with whom they want, that they might submit it to Christ as Lord. Amen. This is a confounding, confusing, surprising call when it comes to us from God. But understand, God will call you to do it. That is almost certainly a promise from Scripture. Whether you don't know Christ yet or you've known Christ for a long time, God is going to call you to defy what you want for yourself to fulfill His will. So God calls in surprising ways. But then in verses 4 through 6, after the call comes to Jonah, we find that God confronts the rebel. What does God do when Jonah runs? God says, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up, tries to go to Tarshish. What does God do? Does he say, ah, never mind, I'll get someone better. Not a problem. Don't need you really anyway, Jonah. Of course, God is sovereign. He doesn't need Jonah. But does God let him go? Does he find someone else who would more willingly fulfill this call? No! Dadgum! Instead, when this prophet of God rebels against the call of God, God confronts Jonah, and he confronts him dramatically. Notice verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Where did the storm come from? Came from the Lord. Where did the call on Jonah's life come from? Came from the Lord. So the same Lord who calls is also the Lord who confronts. He confronts Jonah with this storm that threatens to kill everyone on the ship. Understand from verse 4, this storm is God's storm. It's not an accident of the weather. And it's a storm that is meant to get Jonah's attention. It's a wake-up call to this rebel prophet. But Jonah, though, who went down to Joppa, down, down to a ship, down into the ship, has now gone down into sleep. He is so deep into his rebellion against the Lord that he is sleeping through this storm. Now, some have said that, uh, that Jonah's sleeping through the the storm is an act of just total indifference to everything in the world, including God's call. I think it could also just be evidence of maybe exhaustion, spiritual and physical exhaustion in Jonah's life from running from, the God, from God. He knows he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It could be brought on by severe uh, emotional, psychological, spiritual depression as well, that he's asleep through this storm. But for whatever reason, Jonah is still obviously far, far, far from where God has called him to go. Again, notice the irony in Jonah. 
First of all, there's irony. The prophet who, should have, who knew God should have been willing to go wherever God was calling him to go. And now the prophet who was running from God is now the last person to recognize that the storm is coming from God to them. The first people that recognize the, the divine source of the storm are not Hebrew believers, but pagan mariners, pagan sailors. The captain himself, noticing that Jonah is absent in all the commotion of the storm, calls Jonah with the same word that the Lord called Jonah with. Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1, verse 6, the captain says to Jonah, arise, get up, call out to your God. This whole event, the storm at sea, may appear as though God is punishing Jonah. He's angry at Jonah. Jonah messed up, and God is going to make sure he knows just how badly he messed up. But friends, I think, in light of the whole story of Jonah, that the storm is less about punishment than it is about confrontation of Jonah's rebellion. It's less about punishment and more about rebellion. There's nothing in the text of Jonah that tells us that God, that tells us that God was punishing Jonah because of his rebellion. And, and as many of us know, Jonah's a familiar story to all of us. Jonah is eventually going to go to Nineveh. He's going to do what God called him to do. This is not a storm that is meant to, to, that, that God, in which God is pouring out all of his righteous wrath against Jonah's sin and rebellion, although there may be some of that at play there for sure. But I think it's more a confrontation of Jonah. This is God's work to get Jonah on track to do what God called him to do in the first place. Because God's will for Nineveh is not just God's will for Nineveh, it's also His will for Jonah. God is going to reveal something about Himself to everyone in this story and to us as well. Now, the sailors do well. I think in, in understanding in some regard that this may be punishment from a God against them, that's normally what they would have attributed storms at sea to. The gods are angry, and God's wrath is certainly evident, I think, in the violence of the storm. But the telling of the events themselves doesn't say anything about God trying to put Jonah down. Instead, God is determined to get Jonah to where he's supposed to be. It's like a parent saying to his child, when he's given clear instructions to a child, and the child has just blatantly disobeyed it, rebelled against it, tried to walk away from the responsibilities that have been given to them by their father or by their mother, the parent saying, hold on just a second. I gave you clear instruction, and you will not just walk away from me. There will be some consequences for your rebellion, but at the end of the day, you're going to do what I asked you to do. I think in many ways, this is how God is sort of dealing with Jonah. Now, the, un the unfortunate aspect of all of this is that Jonah, by his rebellion, has now put the lives of these pagan sailors into danger as well. So if you think that your rebellion against God, your sin against God, doesn't endanger other people, dear friend, look at Jonah and these sailors. In chapter 4, God is going to confront Jonah clearly again, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But God confronts this rebel prophet, not just when he tries to run away, but especially even later in Jonah chapter 4, when this prophet tries to have a bad attitude about what God decides to do. There's a similar situation in the New Testament where God works strongly in the life of one of His people to do what He wants them to do, even though it is not the thing that they would care to do. In Acts chapter 10, God calls Peter, one of the lead disciples who's following Jesus, and after Jesus' ascension into heaven at the beginning of Acts, Peter kind of becomes the de facto leader of the, of the church at that point. In Acts chapter 10, God calls Peter, who was a Jew, who had been a Jew his whole life, to preach the gospel of salvation through faith in Christ to a Gentile Roman named Cornelius. In getting Peter to go to a person that Peter himself was not likely to want to go to, God gives Peter a vision. And in this vision, in Acts chapter 10, Peter sees three different times a, a picnic blanket of sorts descending from heaven. And on that picnic blanket are all kinds of food. Now, Peter, being a Jew, would have only eaten kosher foods, foods that were uh, declared clean and holy as God had instructed uh, uh, back in Exodus, Leviticus, uh, back in the law of the first part of the Old Testament. 
So Peter sees this blanket coming down from heaven, and on it are all kinds of kosher foods and all kinds of non-kosher foods. Right? On this blanket are all the things that Peter would have normally eaten and, and taken part in, but also bacon and shellfish and other things that were not necessarily kosher. And Peter says in his vision, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Why do you put this before me? And three times the Lord says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Nothing that I've said is clean is unclean. I'm commanding you to do what I've called you to do, to go to a Gentile named Cornelius, a person that you would not normally want to associate with or eat at table with or spend your life with and preach the gospel to him. In the same way that God presses Jonah to obedience, so God also presses Peter into obedience. And Peter was initially resistant, but then faithful, and he saw the glory of God in the regenerated hearts and lives of these Gentile believers, and goes home praising God and telling the other believers, hey, this is what happened. I preached the, God to, uh, preached the gospel to some Gentiles, and they believed. What do you think about that? Knowing that God confronts the rebel prophet... And that God regularly confronts people who are somewhat rebellious in their hearts to Him, whether they have known Christ yet or not, I think it's helpful for us to ask ourselves the evaluative questions. Am I rebelling against God? How is God confronting my resistance to His will in my life? Maybe you're not sure how to answer that question, so you need to take a, a look at the situation of your life. Maybe there's tension in relationships in your life that, that come from or center around some call of God to be obedient, some command in His Word, some expectation for what it means to follow Christ as a believer that now has created tension in your relationships. Maybe there's profound discontentment in your life because at one point in time, you had a sense that it was obedient to God to go to this place, to go to that school, to move to this city, to preach to that person. And you have regularly rejected God's call in that way. And there's just discontentment with everything around you. Maybe your heart is strained at all of its seams between doing what is right and doing what is comfortable. Maybe you're living headlong in, in, in a direction that you know are, are, is ultimately sinful and you don't feel the conviction of God at all in your life. Maybe you don't feel any tension. Friend, can I say that that's a far scarier place to be than in a place in life where there's a ton of tension over being obedient to God or not? Could it be that God is confronting your resistance to Him by letting you walk into a very dangerous spiritual place that only He can eventually help you out of? Maybe the absence of tension, the absence of difficulty, the absence of friction in your life is more a picture that you're living more according to your own will than that of God's. If that's you, friend, in whatever regard it is, I implore you, repent. <laughs> repent. Turn from your rebellion. Heed the confrontation of a holy God who, if His perfect will is for you in your life a particular direction and you're running from it, repent of that rebellion and seek to be obedient to God. God calls His prophet in unexpected ways. He confronts the rebel and then in verses 7 through 17, we see God using unexpected means to get Jonah back on track. He uses people and things in a particular way that most people wouldn't expect in order to get Jonah to do what God has intended for him to do. There they are on the ship. The, the ship is breaking up because of the storm. The sailors know that someone is responsible for the storm, that, that God or the gods are angry with someone, and so they go to figure it out. And what do they do? They cast lots. They cast lots to find out who's responsible for the, stone, the, the storm. These lots would have been colored stones or bones that probably would have been held in a bag or in somebody's pocket or whatever that would have been uh, thrown out uh, onto the floor or, uh, or onto the deck of the ship in this case. And if the stones came out in a particular order or a, particularly, a particular color of stone landed in front of a, uh, an individual, that would be interpreted as God or the gods saying uh, th uh, this problem or this issue is this person's responsibility. And so the sailors throw lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. Do you think that's by accident? No, of course not. We've already seen God calls Jonah. God sends a storm. He hurls a storm at the ship. And now we see God even directing the falling of the lots so as to show to the sailors and to Jonah 
exactly whose responsibility this is, exactly whose attention God is trying to get. God commands the lot to fall to Jonah. And Jonah is then forced to admit who he is. He's hit with this machine gun style series of questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What's your occupation? You know, what, do you, what God do you serve? And Jonah's answer is, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. They say, who, what God do you fear? And Jonah says, the one who's in charge of everything. The lots are a means, uh, are God's means of bringing Jonah face to face with the God that he himself has disobeyed. Jonah, this rebel prophet trying to flee the presence of the Lord, forced to come face to face with the God it is that he's running from. And what's the response of the sailors? They're terrified. Even more, they are exceedingly afraid, even more afraid than they were before. They say to, the, to Jonah in chapter 10, what have you done? You chucklehead, running from that God? You worship the God who's over everything? The God of the gods? You're running from Him? So God directs the lots to demonstrate who's responsible and to bring Jonah face to face with the God that he is running from. And then God also uses the sailors. We not, might not expect Him to do so. We might not expect that God would use pagan people to accomplish His will. But here in Jonah chapter 1, He absolutely does. The sailors ask Jonah, what do we need to do to appease this Yahweh that you serve? What do we do to make Him happy so that He'll stop this storm so that we can live? Jonah says, throw me overboard. You've already thrown everything else overboard. Throw me too. Jonah's assumption here, though, friends, is not that he will gracefully swim back to shore to Joppa. Jonah's assumption is that he's going to die in the ocean. The best thing for you all to do, he says to these pagan sailors, is kill me. Throw me overboard. Let me drown. You'll be safe. If I'm dead, God can't be mad at me anymore, right? So they throw him overboard. This rebel prophet who would rather drown than do what God has called him to do is thrown into the sea. Catch the irony here in the story again. That the people, the only people who rightly in Jonah chapter 1 fear the Lord the way he ought to be feared are these pagan sailors who never knew his name until this moment. They cry out to God before they throw Jonah overboard, don't hold us responsible for innocent blood. We're just doing what your guy told us to do. We're not trying to make you mad. In this moment, and even before, even before they throw Jonah overboard, what do they do? They try to row hard to get back to shore. Jonah says, throw me overboard. They're like, bro, you're crazy. They try to row, and their rowing is futile. It's pointless. But even in this moment, these pagan sailors who don't know Yahweh or His commands or His people, they demonstrate more compassion for Jonah and his life than Jonah had for the Ninevites to whom God had called him. Their efforts are futile. They throw Jonah overboard. But we know the story. Even this is part of God's plan. Even this is part of God's perfect, sovereign, and often surprising will. God directs the lots to show who's responsible. God directs. He uses the sailors to get Jonah on track. And as the chapter ends, God appoints a fish. Chapter 17, Jonah's in the water. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. By now, we've caught the theme of Jonah 1, I hope. God is doing all of this. God's in charge of all of this. God calls Jonah. God hurls a storm at the ship that Jonah is trying to flee on. God directs the lots to fall to Jonah. God gains the fear of the sailors as they seek to appease him by doing what Jonah has called. And as Jonah is sinking down into the depths of the ocean, hoping that he will drown and not have to be obedient to go to the, uh, the Ninevites, God sends a fish. Now, many a debate has been waged over whether this is a fish or a whale. Friends, it doesn't really matter. This event is miraculous in its truest sense. This is God overcoming the natural world in a particular way or or intervening in the natural world and natural processes in a particular way to do something that doesn't happen. 
Now, some may say there's no way that this story happened. There's no way that Jonah is a true story. It must be a parable. It must be a fable of some sort because people don't survive inside of fish for three days and three nights. Now, for those who believe much of the rest of the Bible, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, shouldn't be much of a problem for us. Those who believe in the resurrected Jesus believe also in a God who created the world out of nothing, who formed man from dust, who breathed the breath of life into him, who parted the seas uh, in, in Exodus, who saved a family through a massive flood, who caused barren women and young virgins to conceive, a God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who exercised demons, who healed the chronically and incurably ill, and raised Christ to life after crucifixion, after three days. Friends, all of that in mind, one large fish swallowing a man is hardly something to derail faith that takes all of these other miraculous events as historical. If you can believe that, Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead, Friends, it's not that hard to believe that God preserved a man in a fish. God calls in surprising ways. God confronts the rebels. God uses unexpected means to get His people on track to accomplish His will in the lives of those to whom He's set His will upon. In light of this truth, friends, that God uses unexpected means and He's going to do what He wants to do, I encourage all of us, let us determine in our hearts to be responsive to God's work. Let's, let's heed the, the negative example of Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 and do the opposite. If God is calling, if He is leading, let's say yes, not no. I say this, that we need to determine in our hearts to be responsive to God's work because God is going to accomplish His will in you and through you. And by now, in Jonah's story, we should see that God is going to do His will. God is going to do what He wants to do. He has willed that Jonah go to Nineveh, and sure as there are fish in the sea, God is going to get Jonah to Nineveh. When there's, that was a pun. It was intended. When there is a clear call on your life from God, friend... Know for certain that He is going to accomplish His will in you. He's going to do it. As Christians, the one clear and certain call of God upon us is to take the hope of the gospel to the world, to all nations, and make disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations who will do the same. To make disciples who will make disciples among people that they know and whom they like and who are like them and among people that we don't yet know who we may not like or may not like us and are certainly not, not like us. Friends, Christians who comprise local, local churches like ours all over the globe have been called. We have been even commissioned by Jesus in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Commissioned to take the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. His death for sins, His glorious resurrection, to take this message to every nation and to all people. This is a clear call from God upon the church. This includes hostile people like the North Sentinelese Islanders who violently attack nearly all persons who come even close to their very remote island. This call goes, out, goes to Christians to go out also to the neighbor across the street from you who may not be the easiest person to live by, who plays their music way too loud at all the wrong hours. This call includes going to drug dealers and gun runners and grumpy old men who yell at kids to get off their lawn. It includes the kind but misled Buddhist of Tibet it includes the lovely but misunderstood and misunderstanding Hindu shopkeeper in India. It includes those who revere the gods of ancient American indigenous peoples. And it includes the generous atheist who lives next door to you. Our call is clear, Christian. It's as clear as Jonas. And God is going to fulfill His will through the church, whether we like doing it or not. So determine in your heart to be responsive to God's call. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I hope you'll hear the call of God from Jonah's life to you as well. Yeah. Not to be a missionary, not yet anyway, but hear the call of God to you to fall on His mercy. We who are Christian often identify and are meant to learn by Jonah's negative example, but the Persons in the story that the non-Christian ought to identify with in, in Jonah are, is not, are not Jonah, but the Ninevites to whom Jonah is called. 
Now, you likely are far kinder, far more gentle, far more humane than the ancient Assyrians were. My guess is you probably don't have heads of your enemies on sticks outside your front gates. And for that, we all thank you. But friend, even if you're not a Christian and still a relatively nice person, you are no less in need of God's mercy and forgiveness of your sins. And here's the beautiful upshot of it all, that God has intended to get you the news of how you may be forgiven, how you may be right with Him. It is through Christians and churches like ours who often act a lot like Jonah. I often act a lot like Jonah. A lot of you often act a lot like Jonah. A lot of us hear God's call and would rather do something different. And friend, if you're not a Christian today and you've never heard the gospel from people that are in this room, listen, I don't, I don't blame you, and that's not your fault. That's on us. We often act like rebel prophets. But nevertheless, God has intended to use imperfect Christians and imperfect churches like ours to get the gospel to you. Though we often act rebellious, it is our call to proclaim to you the good news of God's grace and rescue from sin and to call you to believe it. And because you're here today, we hold out to you the same invitation that we received and that we are commissioned by Christ to deliver. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the message you need to hear. You need to recognize that you are a sinner against a holy God. All of us are. Not a one of us can claim that we aren't. You need to believe that there is a path to reconciliation with God, but that path is not through your own efforts, but through God's effort, through His Son, Jesus, His divine Son who died in your place on a cross and rose again for your forgiveness. The call to you today, dear friend, if you're not yet a Christian, is this. Entrust your whole life to Christ as Lord and receive God's mercy. Receive God's mercy. I pray, friend, if that's if that's you, you're not yet a Christian, and that message is to you, I pray that you would determine in your heart to be responsive to God's call. And maybe even now, silently, in your own way, in your own words, you would pray a prayer to God, something like, God, I've never asked you about anything before. But if this gospel message is true, if I need forgiveness, if I am a sinner that needs forgiveness and I need to be made right with you, help me to see that that's true today. And friend, if, if God is calling in your life to trust Jesus to become a Christian, or you just have more questions about what all this means, will you please come find me after worship today? I'll hang out here at the front for a little bit. Most of us will dismiss to small groups, but if you need to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to receive God's grace and mercy for your sin, come find me. Let's settle that in your heart today. Brothers and sisters, the ways that God works His sovereign will are often surprising. They certainly were in Jonah's life, but they are always successful. Jonah's going to get to Nineveh. Christian, God is going to save a people from every tribe, nation, language, and people group, either to our delight or in spite of our rebellion and laziness. The question for us as believers is this, will we pursue His will to our own delight and to His glory, or must He do it in spite of our resistance? Non-Christian, God will prove Himself the just judge of sin. He has willed to do so. It is in his nature to prove himself just. Will you find yourself in the path of his judgment? Or will you find yourself securely in his favor, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because you've trusted Christ who was judged in your place? God is sovereign. This much is true. Jonah makes no, no question about it. Let us find ourselves then to be willing, loving, worshipful servants of this gracious and merciful God. Will you pray with me?